0: Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the Queen of Crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Katherine Brobeck.
1: I'm Kemper Donovan.
0: And this week we are doing an extremely interesting book that I imagine a lot of our listeners will have a lot of thoughts on. We certainly do.
1: Yeah, let's just say that it is a rare dark and stormy night here in Los Angeles when we are recording this episode.
0: I, for one, had to change my normal recording location because of pounding rain, which, you know, we don't normally get here.
1: And that is quite appropriate because we are covering the pale horse. Biblical quote, right? Mm -hmm. From the, uh, the book of Revelation, we actually get it quoted in full at the end of the book. So let's just go ahead and set the tone right now. And I looked and behold, a pale horse and his name that sat on him was death and hell followed with him.
0: To start us off on a perhaps later note, this was first published in book form in November of 1961 by Collins Grime in the UK. And then in 1962 by Dodd Mead in the US, it was serialized shortly before the UK book publication in Women's Mirror in the fall of 1961 and in a condensed form in the US in Ladies Home Journal in spring of 1962, which strikes me, Kemper, as an extremely weird place to publish this.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's an interesting choice. I have two publishing-related or provenance-related tidbits Before we get into the story proper, eagle-eyed readers may note that we have a rare gap here in the Christie bibliography, because Cat Among the Pigeons came out in the UK in 1959, and this book didn't come out until 1961, so... there was no Christie novel for Christmas in 1960. Of course, there was something put out in the UK. They, in fact, put out a collection of short stories. It consisted of five Poirots and one Marple, and it was mainly stuff that had already been published in the US. So there really was a hole in the US, although it was one year later. The gap was in 1961. This UK collection is the one where Christie refused to include three blind mice, which still to this day, we've talked about this before, has not... Not been published in the UK, but it was already published in the US. So why was Christie such a slacker? What was she doing? How dare she not put out a sausage from the sausage machine? She was capping off a decade of devotion to theatrical pursuits. This is also something we've talked about. She really did write a lot of plays in the 50s, including not just adaptations of her novels, which she had been doing from the 40s, but a lot of original material. And we discussed this at great length in our Patreon episode for Spider's Web. Mm-hmm. Um, But, you know, during the 50s, there was a period where she had three plays that were all on the West End at the same time, which is extremely impressive. And in 1958, she delivered the original play, The Unexpected Guest. That's something I imagine we will be covering very shortly on a future Patreon episode. You know, those theatrical pursuits were just sometimes to the exclusion, or I guess we should say marginalization, of her novel. So I have to guess that if she hadn't been working on The Unexpected Guest, there probably would have been a Christie for Christmas in 1960. The only other fun fact I have about the provenance of this book, and as always, I'm drawing on John Curran, who you know reported the contents of Agatha Christie's many, many notebooks in his two fabulous books about Agatha Christie's notebooks. He reports that she considered making this a Poirot book, but ultimately settled on a quote-unquote plain book. That's how she referred to it in her notebooks, which I, I love that way of characterizing a book that doesn't have a series-long detective as a plain mm-hmm. book. But this is an unusual title because she also considered making it a Miss Marple title. And she seems to have considered making it a Miss Marple title a little bit more than she did making it a Poirot title because there were two ways that she could have connected Miss Marple, which she mused about in her notebooks. The first is that Miss Marple could have been a neighbor of one of the many, many victims that we have in this story. And the second is that Mark Easterbrook could have been her great nephew, the son of, oh, yes one. Raymond
0: West. Um,
1: (laughs) Mark Easterbrook is a stodgy literary fellow and uh, I could see it. I, I, I could see him having some Raymond West roots to him. The only other thing I want to mention, and this is to tease you, my dear listeners, and you in particular, Catherine, but I can't get into the specific inspiration for the murderer in this story until we unveil said murderer. But when we do get there, I have what I think might be the best story that Agatha Christie tells of who this inspiration was in her autobiography. So I'm going to be reading out from her autobiography and I am just so excited to do so. So I just well, wanted to dangle that I'm
0: excited, I'm excited that more so. for you, Kemper. And for, of course, <laughs> our listeners.
1: All right. Well, I think we should probably get right into Mm -hmm. this. So let's talk about our victims. And normally when we're doing these breakdowns, we say that there are too many suspects to list. But in this case, there are actually way too many victims to list. And and I really do mean that. There's actually a list. There's a list and more as well. I mean, there's a list plus. So what we're going to do to keep things sane here is just to list the important ones who figure into our summary of the book. So this is a partial list, but... We're going to start first with Thomasina Tuckerton, good old Tommy Tuckerton, a young lady who frequents spirited coffee bars and who dies tragically of encephalitis.
0: We have uh, Mrs. Davis, who is a dying parishioner. She's Catholic. She uh, is dying of pneumonia, and serving her is Father Gorman, who's a priest, who's coshed or bashed um, over the head on the street after giving the last rites to her. Um, And he's the pretty much only victim in this story to have seemingly not died of some kind of disease or natural cause.
1: And then we have two more who we're going to mention. First up, Lady Hesketh Dubois, who got a brain tumor. It was a tumor. It's not a tumor. The last victim we're going to mention is Mary Delafontaine, who uh, died from an attack of toxic polyneuritis and yeah i'm not completely sure what that is either but uh, we also don't really need to know so just again a seemingly natural death there let's move over into our list of suspects Catherine.
0: It's not everyone. It's still a lot of people. And, so, you know, we we go to our aforementioned Mark Easterbrook, who's the narrator for most of the story. It, it goes back and forth. He's bookish. He's from a good family. He's writing a treatise on mogul architecture. I mean, I got Max Malone mm, yes. vibes. And he's trying to get to the bottom of things the entire time. So, of course, he's not supposed to be a suspect. But then again, he's the first person narrating. So can we trust that in a Christie?
1: Never trust anything in a Christie. You never know. Next up, we have Catherine Ginger Corrigan. I'm using air quotes around that ginger. That would be her nickname. She's a pretty and spunky, redheaded, naturally, young lady who joins Mark in his investigations.
0: We have Pamela Poppy Sterling, a ditzy flower shop clerk who knows much more than she's willing to say about, wait for it, Kemper,
1: the pale horse ominous. Next up, we have Mr. Venables, an enigmatic, uh, mega rich person who is in a wheelchair and lives in Much Deeping, which is a seemingly idyllic village in the West Midlands where about half of our story's action takes place. The other half taking place in London.
0: And just to be clear, Much Deeping is actually what it's called here.
1: It's one of those quirky, Christy names for a village and perhaps the quirkiest.
0: Ye- yes, I would say so. And then we have um, Mr. Osborne, who's this eager, bright-eyed London chemist, pharmacist, who recently retired to the West Midlands, but not before observing something potentially crucial to the
1: murder investigation. Next up, we have Mr. Bradley, an odious businessman in Birmingham, which is the biggest city in the West Midlands. And
0: then, last but not least at all, we have three ladies who bear a striking resemblance to Macbeth's weird sisters. Double, double toil and trouble, Gember. They're kind of an indivisible entity when it comes to considering them as a suspect. They live together in much deeping, and they are Theresa Gray, um, who's an occultist, uh, Sybil Stamfordis, who's a medium, and Bella Webb, who's their cook, but also apparently a witch.
1: Indeed. We've got some black magic and potential supernatural hijinks going on here in this story and how. And we will get into that in the world as it appears to be. So we open on Mark Easterbrook in a Chelsea coffee bar, mm-hmm. musing as to the sinister sounds modern appliances make and the dirtiness of young ladies these yeah, days. But... Definitely two very Mark Easterbrookish things to muse about. Again, he's sort of bookish and stodgy. And uh, he then witnesses in this coffee bar a fight between two such dirty young ladies. And he watches as one of them gets her hair pulled out by the roots by the mm-hmm. other. And we learn that the one who had her hair pulled out is Thomasina Tuckerton. Everyone calls her Tommy. Despite all appearances, she's actually quite rich. And we fast forward to a week later when Mark notices a name in the desk column of the Times. That's right. It's Thomasina Tuckerton. She's dead. But you know, Mark brushes off that sad news and he hails a taxi and he goes to visit. <gasps> Wait for it. This is so exciting. <laughs> Would it be? Ariadne
0: Oliver! Yay! And she is as quirky as ever.
1: Oh boy. Christy is sending herself up with Ariadne Oliver in the scene, as she always does. I think she even mentions that she's on, like, about her 55th mystery novel at oh, this point, which is almost exactly where Christy was.
0: Yeah, and at, there's at the, at the, all sorts point. of, like, weird stuff with her talking to herself, writing. It's actually, like, pretty delightful.
1: I think that she is a much-needed light note in this book because she does pop up every now and then. And whenever she does, there's always you know, at least a hint of comedy and lightness. And, um, that's about all we get (laughs) in this book because there's a lot of dark and ugly goings on otherwise. So I, I appreciated Mm -hmm. her perhaps even more than I have in previous books. But in any case, Mark is there because he knows her. He's a writer too. So they seem to know each other from the literary world and his cousin, Rhoda, who we'll get to a little later, she wants Mark to invite Mrs. Oliver to a fate, to a church fate to sign books. Mrs. Oliver understandably is feeling a little wary about going to fate since Maybe. you know the last time we saw her. Dead man's folly. It was a much? big old murder. Yeah. Yeah, it would be dead man's folly. But after delighting us for many pages with her eccentricity, uh, she says she'll think about it. And Mark leaves it at that.
0: So we transition from Mark's first-person narrative to a third-person account of, as we mentioned earlier, Father Gorman being called to the bedside of a Mrs. Davis. She seems eager to confess something before she Dies and we follow Father Gorman as he leaves the dead woman and he turns into a small cafe where he writes down a list of names. The implication is, and this is like an oddly written sequence, because while it's third person, we don't actually get to hear what Mrs. Davis is telling him. All we get is that when he gets to the cafe, he's writing down the list of names. And we have to know that that's what she must have told him.
1: We have to make that inference. Yes, you have to
0: make, right. You have to make the inference, but like it's pretty obvious, but it's not, it's not spelled out and he doesn't want to forget. And then because clearly whatever she told him in her deathbed confession, it freaked him out. Because then he takes that paper and he puts it into his shoe. He um, notes that his cassock has a rip in the lining. So his notebook goes through the hole in the pocket. And that's also why this is too important. So he puts it into the shoe. So at this point, we really can see where this is going in that an unnamed man who has just come into the cafe he did not see father gorman put the note in his shoe but he follows a priest out of the cafe and he kills him by way of bashing him over the head
1: so we cut to our inspector d'histoire that would be divisional detective inspector ddi lejeune who is chatting away with the police surgeon on Father Gorman's case, a Dr. Corrigan. And they don't really know why anyone would have wanted to kill this kindly, very well-respected priest, but they know the most curious item they found on the body, which is, of course, that list of names stowed away in his shoe. And on that list, there are nine names. Mm-hmm. You know, As we mentioned, we're, we're doing a little bit of a culling here just for purposes of our summary. So we're going to highlight three of those nine names which are Tuckerton, Hesketh Dubois, and Delafontaine.
0: So Lejeune... Does some investigating. We learned from Mrs. Davis's landlady that Mrs. Davis worked at a consumer research association, asking people nosy questions about what household products they use. Then, when she got the flu and had a lot of time on her hands, she, you know, was questioning her job. The landlady wasn't sure how exactly. Then she got better. Then she got worse. And then and as we just saw, she died. Lejeune interviews um, this local chemist named Zachariah Osborne, whose shop is near where Father Gorman was coshed over the head. And he says he saw a man following the priest on the night in question. He says this man had a big Adam's apple and a great beak of a nose. <laughs> okay. Mr. Osborne says that he would definitely recognize him again because he never forgets a face. And he also mentioned when being interviewed that he was an actor when he was younger but it didn't work out, which
1: just like let's keep that in just, mind. Just, just an FYI. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And- and then we are back in Mark Easterbrook's narrative. We you know, we took a break from Mark's point of view, and now we're back. Christy doesn't do that very often. I mean, the last time I can remember in a significant book was the ABC murders, actually, uh, which I found a little awkward in that book, and I found a little awkward here, too. I can see why she did it, but it is a little jarring. So Mark is on a date with his good friend Hermia Redcliffe, uh, his beautiful and reliable old friend. Maybe he's a little bored with her. That is definitely a through line here in the, in this first half of the novel. And after taking in Macbeth at the Old Vic, Hermia and Mark run into a friend at dinner. That This would be David Ardingly, who's there with his dits of a girlfriend. There's Poppy, mm-hmm. Pamela yeah. Sterling, a.k.a. Poppy. And when the uh, prandial chatter leads to a discussion of, you know, how convenient it must have been to hire out a murderer, as happens in Macbeth, you know, how, unfortunately, 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 ha ha ha, we can't do that nowadays. Poppy innocently comments that, oh, well, no, it is possible to hire a murderer these days. What are you talking about? And she says, I meant the pale horse, all that sort of thing. Everyone's just sort of like, okay, sure. Um, and you know, she's again, sort of a ditz and says strange things. So the moment passes. The next
0: morning, Mrs. Oliver calls Mark and tells him, yeah, actually, you know, she will go to that country fate. She happens to also mention a pub in that part of the country, which guess what it might be called, Kemper? Oh, I'm gonna guess
1: the pale yeah, horse.
0: Yeah, called the pale horse. And Mark clocks the coincidence that the strange phrase appears twice in such a short amount of time. What are the odds? But, you know, first he has to go to his godmother's house. She died recently, leaving him his choice of paintings and her will and her name, Lady Hasketh Dubois. And as he's leaving her place, he runs into his old friend from Oxford, Dr. Corgan. They re connect over lunch and that leads Corgan telling him about that list of names which kind of seems a little bit inappropriate on Dr. Corgan's part but you know old school chums right you know we want to know why that list exists so maybe Mark possibly could shed some light why might Lady Hasketh Dubois name be on it but he can't even imagine her being mixed up in anything.
1: Right, yeah, she was a very, you know, older, proper Victorian mm-hmm. lady. So he's at a complete loss. Later, that pale horse name still bothering him, Mark takes it upon himself to look up Poppy at her place of business. She, uh, you know, sells flowers, as we mentioned quite appropriate given her name. He asks her to tell him more about the pale horse. And she basically just deer in the headlights it. She's like, uh, what do you mean? What do you, I, I never said anything about that. I, I don't know anything about a, about a pale horse. And she's just completely terrified. So that's super weird. Very weird. And on, that note, we leave London and now transition into a much Deeping, seemingly lovely little village in the West Midlands. And we are post fate. Everyone is gathered around and agreeing that the fate went off very well. And we're at cousin Rhoda's house, actually, in a raid in this domestic circle. We of course have Mark Easterbrook and Mrs. Ariadne Oliver, as well as his cousin Rhoda and her husband, Colonel Despard. And if those names are sounding a little familiar, that would be because we've, actually met those characters before they appeared as Rhoda Dawes and Major Despard in Cards on the Table and at the end of that book Rhoda and the Major kind of got together mm-hmm. and clearly they really did get together and they <laughs> got married and have children the Major has become a colonel and they seem to be doing splendidly in Much Deeping it's a little odd because Ariadne Oliver is also in Cards and on the she Table
0: is, and she should have known and, them
1: yeah it's never really acknowledged although you know when Mark says, "Hey, my cousin Rhoda wants you to do this fate," she, it's not like she's asking. Wait, who's Rhoda again? So, like, maybe it's kind of assumed that she did know who she was as well. But we could have used a line, <laughs> a line or two, just for continuity's sake. But um, well,
0: I mean, we it kind of gets even weirder because okay, so we have we have Ginger, who I already mentioned Ginger because she has red hair. But then we have Reverend Caleb Dayton Calthrop and his wife, and where do we know them from?
1: Yeah, they too are here in this room post-fate, and we know them from The Moving Finger. Mm-hmm. So let's first of all, just acknowledge that this stitches, you know, this knits together to use an appropriate word, the Poirot verse and the Marple verse, doesn't it? Because we have characters from Poirot and Marple now existing in a book in which neither of them appear. Right. So that's an interesting choice. And these two appear very much as they do in The Moving Finger, which is that no one really listens to the Reverend Caleb Dane Calthrop, who quotes a lot of scripture and stuff in latin and greek that no one cares about but his wife is a very forceful personality who many people seem to rely on for her opinions and uh that is very much the case she's
0: incredibly astute
1: Yes. She really had barely a uh, presence in the ring right. finger and it was a really pretty awkward. She was a bit of a deus ex machina, quite honestly, who just brings in Miss Marple in that book. So I actually do feel like she gets to shine and kind of blossom in this book. Um, it's a good Maude Dane Calthrop book.
0: Yeah. She's incredibly observant. She's almost playing the Marple role.
1: Yeah, a little bit, except it's so minor that, you know, she couldn't really be Miss Marple. And it's funny you say that because she's actually the one who quotes from the Book of Revelations at the end of the novel. And in Christie's notebooks, when she was considering that Miss Marple would be in the novel, she said, oh, well, of course, Miss Marple will will quote from the Book of Revelation at the end. So, yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah, She's filling the, the slight Miss Marple role that Christie carved out and then sort of discarded. In any case, Mark brings up the pale horse hoping to get a reaction since he's like, What is going on with the pale horse? But everyone just remarks quite calmly that, oh, that's not a pub, which is what Mrs. Oliver thought it was. It's this super old inn that's actually inhabited by these three super odd older women. And again, that would be Thurza Gray and Sybil Stamfortis and the their cook Bella. And they're all said to be, you know, some version of witches and no one really seems to take it all that seriously. But Mark says, you know, I want to go to there and uh, everyone agrees, sure, you know, that'll be a large will do that. But first, they actually visit this local character, Mr. Venables. And he's this rich old guy. You know, he's confined to a wheelchair uh, due to polio. He has tons of personality and even greater tons of curios, I guess you could call them, forming many, many collections that he's amassed over the years. And Mark is sort of interested in a lot of what he owns and, and what he, you know, and his opinions. And um, they have a great time there. I believe he serves them lunch. And, you know, and a ast- astute, a super astute reader might notice that uh, with his hawk-like appearance, he looks a lot like the man Mr. Osborne said he saw following Father Gorman, but don't worry, we'll get there in a bit. So
0: then... Guess what? We get to go to the Pale Horse, and the three older ladies um, are pretty witchy. They have a grimoire, Kemper. Yeah. <laughs> like, how how many people have a grimoire?
1: And, like, an, an original edition of Malleus Maleficarum as well, uh, and, and that's impressive. Very impressive. You know,
0: Sybil kind of has all the trappings of this, and Bella is just kind of creepy, creepy. Tirza is really the standout here, and she and Mark have this intense conversation about whether it's possible to kill people by way of thoughts due to the inherent death wish everyone possesses. She says, yes, you can think about voodoo, right? That's a little bit what they're Mm -hmm. talking about, too
1: the power of suggestion.
0: Yeah, or I mean in very various other ways. I mean this uh, like self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. So afterward Mrs. Oliver mentions she has to go to a funeral of her friend, uh, Mary Delafontaine, who again, as we mentioned, died of that toxic polyneuritis.
1: Right. So Mark is pretty perturbed by all this because that's now three names and three unusual names, right? I mean, he saw Tommy Tuckerton, but then he is the godson of Lady Hesketh Dubois, mm-hmm. and Delafontaine is an unusual enough name that he suspects these are the three people who were on that list, and they are now dead. Mm-hmm. He also actually finds out that a few of the other people on the list very well may have stayed in much deeping in close proximity to the Pale Horse, and he's just coming off of this super disturbing conversation in which Thurza Gray seems to be intimating that she can kill people remotely (laughs) and perhaps has done so many, many a time. So what does he do? Well, he drops in on Mrs. Dane Calthrop, and perceptive woman that she is, she calls him out immediately on the fact that, you know, what he's really worried about is that, in fact, everyone on that list is dead, and that Thurza Gray is right, that somehow you know, she and her two weird sisters Mm -hmm. are behind all this, and that it really is possible to kill people from a distance, making it seem like they're dying of natural causes, that they're really cursing people and murdering them remotely, as ludicrous as that sounds. I mean, he's a sophisticated, cultured man, he realizes that this just sounds completely improbable. But Mrs. Dane Calthrop is not one to balk at the strange or the unlikely or the improbable. And she tells Mark, you know, he needs to find the connection among these people and the pale horse. And that the first thing he has to do is find someone he can rely on to help him.
0: So who does he go to? He goes to the ladies. First, he goes to Hermia, who blows him off. She thinks it's silly. She has better things to do. So, you know, he's like hurt and goes to Ginger, who is much more helpful by specifically cozying up to Poppy and learning, you know, via some girl talk that the way you go about doing your murder for hire business, a la the pale horse, is to start with a Mr. Bradley in Birmingham, who is a Murmy businessman who names the going rate for your murder for hire without actually saying so and collects the payment. Yikes.
1: Yeah. And he really is me. I mean, at one point when Mark goes to see him, I, I believe he says, now what's the trouble? Tell Papa. Like he refers to himself as Papa. He's really he, gross. Really
0: terrible. Unctuous. Uh,
1: He's unctuous. Yes.
0: He also... Mark looks into who might want Tommy Tuckerton dead. And it turns out her stepmother inherited all of her money. So Mark goes to see Mrs. Tuckerton and brings up the pale horse at the last minute. I think that we know this from a lot of mystery series. I feel like it's Columbo and like, you know, Jessica Fletcher and whatever else, right? Oh, oh, one more thing before I forget. And uh, she reacts. So it's pretty clear that she used the pale horse to do away with poor Tommy. So at this point, we're suddenly realizing at least that the phrase the pale horse is a catch all for murder for hire.
1: We also, at this point, get a smattering of chapters from the third-person perspective again, in which Mr. Osborne claims it was indeed Mr. Venables who he saw following Father Gorman the night he was killed. Even when Inspector Lejeune points out that, well, uh, you see, Mr. Venables is in a wheelchair, so that's kind of impossible, Mr. Osborne is insistent about what he saw, and it leads a reader to question, could there be more than meets the eye to Mr. Venables? We'll see. Which, by the way, we've seen this before. We've seen the person who
0: is pretending to be frail not being frail in Christie. So, absolutely. So, anyway, Mark and Ginger concoct a plan and a funny and convenient story, but Mark was actually married once. It wasn't long time ago he wasn't even of age and apparently his people would have cut up rough if they ever found out and it's a good thing he didn't because she was a big old cheater who died in a car accident in Italy while cheating on him with another man you hate it when that happens and why this it's all very why this is in it's here all a little bit, is like um, a little bit curious
1: miss- it's all a little bit Mr. Rochester and his first wife <laughs> getting Hoodwinked into a marriage in every way that that is problematic. This is a little bit of a false note in the novel. It feels like a convenient backstory that I didn't totally believe existed for no Mark re- other than for the purpose there's of No
0: reason plot. for it to be here, but okay, it's there. Yeah. Also there's no record of her death, which seems weird.
1: Yeah, they say like, oh, well, she died in Italy, so there's no record of her death in England. I was like, really? Okay.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well... Ginger decides she's going to pretend to be Mrs. Easterbrook, who won't give Mark a divorce now that he wants to marry Hermia. And Mark loops in Inspector Lejeune in on this out of an abundance of caution because, of course, he's so worried Ginger will somehow be cursed by the Pale Horse Ladies and die. That doesn't stop him from putting her in that position, but there we have it
1: but he feels really bad about it and you know <laughs> right. it, it also tickled me
0: right it feels really bad <laughs> fast about
1: forward it. about 30 seconds if you haven't read 450 from paddington and lord edward dies but what tickles me is that the murder motivation that they concoct here which is that a first wife won't give her husband the divorce that he wants so he's going to have her murdered is exactly what was at the crux of 450 from well,
0: paddington. and also lord edward dies
1: and lord edward dies yeah so you know we're we're totally in Christie land here. So Mark goes back to the odious Mr. Bradley and he bets 1800 pounds that his first wife won't die by the end of a month. And you know, if he should happen to lose that bet, he'll just have to pay up, he supposes. And then Mark goes down to much deeping where he brings a glove of gingers. Uh, he's instructed to bring some personal possession of hers. And he proceeds to have a super spooky and like honestly slightly upsetting seance with the three weird sisters. There's a Sybil and Bella yeah. in which there's a whole lot of chanting. There's some animal cruelty going on. There's definitely a cockerel. As it's referenced in the text, whose throat is slit and there's lots of blood and screaming about blood. This is the portion of the novel that reminded me a little bit of Rosemary's Baby, quite honestly. Yeah, um, which you know is rare for Christie. Like this is some bloody horror soaked.
0: Well, the, the um, book actually like does have like some real Rosemary's Baby vibes. There is a sort of Polanski, also repulsion. Mm -hmm. There's a real vibe of of that in here.
1: And what it also really reminded me of was The Last Seance, which is an early short story of hers that we covered, which is extremely theatrical mm-hmm. and originally written, mm-hmm. in fact, as a play. And you can tell when you read it. And that was, you know, it was the Grand Guignol. It was written right. in the Grand Guignol yeah. tradition of horror. And we have echoes of that here. You know, I think she's exercising the same muscle and <laughs> scratching the same itch that she didn't scratch all that often. But for, again, we say this so many times, but for those who think, Christine is cozy and that no one ever really gets hurt in a Christie. mm, read the pale horse (laughs) because that is not the case.
0: So Ginger, (sighs) the next day, seems fine when Mark calls her. She is holed up. She only had the most incidental of visits by the gas man and the like. So it all seems okay, except when he calls her the next day, she says she has a sore throat, perhaps the beginning of a flu temper. And Mark, of course, is very nervous. And since this is 2021 and we have been locked inside for 11 months, I think that probably all of us are pretty nervous about this for poor Ginger. There's
1: nothing worse. I mean, I I have to say among all of the horrible things that happened in this book, Mark and Ginger on the phone and, and him being like, why does your voice sound weird? And her being like, oh, well, you know, I guess I'm coming down with something, but (laughs) it's not so bad. I was just like, "Ah, no, no. I mean, it's like literally what we've been sitting in our houses dreading for almost a year Yeah, and it hit home.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And as I think both you and I have had pneumonia, Kemper, right? Yes. Yeah. Both of us have had pneumonia and I've had bronchitis a bunch of times. And so, yeah, she gets bronchial pneumonia and gee, the question here is do the which is actually of supernatural powers? Um, is Ginger gonna die? Is basically where
1: we are at here. Yeah, when we when we end the world as it appears to be. I mean, it really seems as though. Did Christy write a book in which the supernatural actually exists and has validity? And that question is a perfect segue into our first clue, because the answer and the deduction there is no, no,
0: of course not. No, of course she didn't. <laughs> no, I mean, like you, he, you get the supernatural. It's not like she did not write the supernatural into
1: things, but this is not one of them. Right. She has her spooky short stories. Many of them are collected in The Hound of Death. And we've covered a bunch of them on, mm-hmm. you know, here on the regular podcast and, and on our Patreon episodes as well. And of course there's Mr. Quinn, but she has faked us out so many times before. I'm just going to mention Two novels, and I don't think this really necessarily spoils things, but we have elements of this in The Siddeford Mystery and Dumb Witness. And then uh, two of our favorite short stories, actually, that we've covered. One is The Adventure of the Egyptian Tomb, an early Poirot that I think we both have a lot of affection for, as well as a Mr. Quinn, in fact, which is the voice in the dark, where there's a particular element of the supernatural that turns out to be quite false. And in The Adventure of the Egyptian Tomb, actually, I always remembered it since we covered that story, and I think it's um, really important to remember when we're analyzing what Christy does, but what there's a distinction that Poirot makes, which is that we don't have to believe in the supernatural, but we should always believe in other people's belief in the supernatural right. because that belief has power. Well, I mean, I, the power of faith, oh, correct, is real.
0: Yeah, the power, and so you see it consistently. Also, that the power of religion is real. Indeed. So. Clue number two, there is a running theme in this entire novel about a hair falling out. Thank goodness for Mrs. Oliver, who calls up Mark to say she's learned that Lady Haskett de Bois' hair was falling out when she was dying, as was her friend Mary Delafontaine's. And she remembers that Mark told her Tommy Tuckerton had her hair pulled out by the roots and, you know, didn't seem to mind. And following this conversation, Mark confirms that poor Ginger's hair is also falling out. So as many a lady with dyed hair knows and with anybody who's ever had chemotherapy would know there's chemicals involved in some way that's making that happen.
1: Mark comes to that conclusion and tells us outright, I mean, we're obviously getting into the denouement of the novel by the time he gets there, but he specifically says they must all be victims of a poisoning in some way. And he even just tells us outright outright what the poison is because he figures it out pretty quickly. It's thallium. This is, you know, an extremely rare poison. And as happens so often in Christie, she makes excellent use of it. And she's extremely accurate about the effects of thallium. And we can get into it a little bit uh, when we're talking about plot credibility, actually. But I think this really speaks extremely highly of just the overall credibility of this horrible, Mm -hmm. horrible story. And uh, you'd better believe I'll be um, referencing Catherine Harkups, as for arsenic, who uh, devotes all of tea to thallium. Right. All right. So, first, though, let's continue on with our clues. Clue number three, which is a Christie classic, and that would be flipping an assumption on its head. I don't know if we've christened it this way before, but I'm just going to call it the flip it and reverse it clue. Is it worth it? Let me work it. I put my thing down, flip it and reverse it. That's uh, Missy? Shout out to Missy yeah. You know, all throughout this book, we've been asked to question Mr. Venables mm. due to Mr. Osborne's insistence that he he saw Mr. Venables following Father Gorman. So the deduction here is flip it and reverse it. We should be questioning not Mr. Venables, but Mr. Osborne's right. insistence well, I mean, in the first I think
0: place. I think it's related to that, but we see this a lot where the person who is very insistent on something, don't trust them.
1: Indeed. And this dovetails so wonderfully with our next clue Clue number four, which I'm so pleased to give to you, Catherine.
0: I was bitten by the stage. Felt sure I could act. My father didn't try to stop me. See what you can make of it, my boy, he said. You'll find your no, sir, Henry Irving. Guess who says that, Kemper?
1: Who says that in the yeah. book? Who was a failed wannabe yeah, actor? actors? we mentioned this mm. earlier.
0: I mean, it's Mr. Osborne. Mr. Osborne is an actor.
1: So Mr. Osborne is an actor, hence Mr. Osborne is the book yeah.
0: No, I mean, like, like you can get, you can get this pretty clearly up front. I'm not saying that Christy's lazy about this, but if there's an actor in the story, as we've said a million times, we have our rules, right? Never underestimate the help. And if there's an actor... You should notice that.
1: We've gone to great pains, I think, to point out when she uses actors as red herrings, which of course she does. And maybe when we're done, I would love to actually do a roundup of how many times she features actors and how often they do figure centrally into the murder plot because it's definitely quite significant, especially earlier mm-hmm. in the opera. actually. So this, you know, to me you, was, was sort a of like a Kemper.
0: callback. Do you think that, I, I've thought about this a lot over the years that we've been doing this podcast. Do you think it's because she had some jealousy of them that, <laughs> I mean, there's no evidence <laughs> of this anywhere, but we know that she had this real love of the performing arts and she'd gone to finishing school in Paris And is it some jealousy factor that the actor is always the villain?
1: I like that theory. I honestly think it's a gesture toward verisimilitude. I think that so often what these murderers pull off requires such acting chops that it really helps Mm. to have given them a backstory in which they're actors of some sort. Right, right. But I like that theory. (laughs) It could be both. It could be both. <laughs> All right. Clue number five here, which is really just a supplemental clue, but it helps seal the deal, I think, which is a clue we also come across quite often. And that would be access. Who would have easy access to a rare poison like thallium? Uh, yeah, the deduction is that the chemist did it. But if you don't mind, Catherine, I would love to take our final clue Please go for as well. It. Thank you. Uh, because the real mystery here is really, to a certain extent, not who, but how. Because even when we know that it's Mr. Osborne, it seems impossible. and Christy, doesn't really give us much in the way of getting there on our own as astute readers I think but there is one clue and I'm pleased to say that this clue as to how Mr Osborne pulls it off is a yet another Christie classic that would be ye old laundry list because when Mark asks Ginger who she's come in contact with while holding herself up you know just after she's been cursed by the weird sisters here is her response only what you might expect. The milkman, the man to read the gas meter, a woman asking me what patent medicines and cosmetics I used, someone asking me to sign a petition to abolish nuclear bombs, and a woman who wanted a subscription for the blind. Oh, and the various flat porters, of course. Very helpful. One of them mended did a fuse for me. Maybe, by the way, speaking of jealousy, maybe I'm just jealous of Ginger's apparently swinging lifestyle, (laughs) given my current situation of lockdown. But that feels like a lot of people to have seen when you're supposed to be holed up in isolation.
0: Yes, I certainly get a lot of delivery people, but they leave stuff at the door.
1: Right. No contact delivery. Yeah. Hey, if Ginger had been living in the age of no contact delivery, she never would have gotten sick. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. But yeah, I mean, this really is a laundry list Mm -hmm. of people. And our deduction here is that at least one person among this list is going to turn out to be significant and give us a clue as to how Ginger and all these other people have been poisoned. So, you know, I think you can make an argument that Christy is playing fair here as to the how as well. But rather than, you know, guessing anymore, let's just get to our resolution. Take it away, Kevin.
0: Mr. Osborne, obviously, it's behind this. Mr. Bradley handles the money and the three witches, quote unquote, at the pale horse provide the supernatural, quote unquote, cover for what's really happening, which is that Mr. Osborne hires women for a consumer research association he owns to ask seemingly innocent household survey questions. But these questions are cleverly phrased so that Mr. Osborne knows what household products, soap, toothpaste, whatever else, he can then taint with thallium to poison and kill them. Cool. (laughs) I mean, like, yikes. Don't take candy from strangers.
1: Or keep an eye on your gas meter, man, when he comes in to read the meter. (laughs) Yeah.
0: So it's Mr. Osborne himself who goes into the houses disguised as various day laborers to plant the thallium his employee mrs davis accidentally saw him doing this once which is why she grew wise to what was happening and was killed herself so she's the person of course who knows right
1: right she's the one who you know gave the list mm-hmm. of names or to uh, father to father Gorman, to father yeah. and yeah that's why she safe to assume that she too was poisoned by thallium which is why she seemed to get better and then oops she got worse and then she died so So Mr. Osborne, that means, was lying when he said that he saw Mr. Venables following Father Gorman because he was following Father Gorman and killing him. The reason why that happened is that he saw Mr. Venables sitting in a car one day and noticed his unusual face, and he just used that face for witness ID. It's actually, in a very snarky way, one of my favorite lines of this book is that he says, you know, it really is hard to describe people. And I just think it's funny that Christy herself wrote that line since we often do poke fun in a gentle and loving way at her sometimes lacking physical descriptions of people. But I don't know. I mean,
0: I like a lot of gorgeous tan men who were adventurers.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The point is, it's really hard to describe someone without having an actual face in mind. So he just ends up describing Mr. Venables, who he saw. And he, of course, didn't realize that Mr. Venables is in a wheelchair. But he just stubbornly stuck to this lie, even after he learned that fact. And D.D.I. Lejeune and Mark go down to Mr. Venables' estate with Mr. Osborne. And they pretend that what they're about to do is to arrest Mr. Venables for you know, being this criminal mastermind. and it's all just a fake out in which they can ensnare Mr. Osborne and he totally falls for it and he just loses his marbles. You know, this is one of those rather gruesome murderer reveals. It puts me in mind of towards yeah, zero, that's... but I actually think that this is one of the best rendered ones because all that Christie writes rather than over describing him becoming a gibbering psychopath, which she sort of does in towards zero. I think this is all she writes to close out the chapter. It was then that Mr. Osborne began to scream. It's really effective because we've seen him be this genial, nerdy, over eager, eager to please man. And he is just evil incarnate. And, At first, I had a problem with the fact that he was stupid enough to stick to his Mr. Venable story. But I think, being fair to Christy, part of her point here is that evil is subhuman. Evil is dumb to a certain extent. Because, you know, Christy, we've talked about this so many times, she is not here to put evil on a pedestal. She actually values innocence and decency, et cetera, et cetera. And this is an extremely flawed man. The
0: thing that you would also say is that he stuck to his story. The reality is people, witnesses, actually don't stick to their stories generally. They second guess themselves. They are a little bit unclear. The fact that he is so clear about it
1: is actually the suspicious part. It's not that he
0: made it up. It's that he is so
1: clear on it. Well, and it also shows his true arrogance at core. And this is a perfect segue, actually, Catherine, into what I had promised you that story that christy tells in her autobiography as to the inspiration for mr osborne settle in just for a second because this is this is a little bit of an extended excerpt but i promise you that it's worth it because it really is just truly fascinating and delightful this is Christie writing of being trained in the dispensary during World War I. And per Janet Morgan, this was all happening in 1917. So, you know, this is part of what made Christie, Christie the mystery novelist in that she was acquiring this expertise in poisons. And this is what she writes of a particular experience. On this particular afternoon, I was having instruction in the making of suppositories, things which were not much used in the hospital, but which I was supposed to know how to make for the exam. They are tricky things, mainly owing to the melting point of the cocoa butter, which is their base. If you get it too hot, it won't set. If you don't get it hot enough, it comes out of the molds the wrong shape. In this case, Mr. P., the pharmacist, was giving me a personal demonstration and showed me the exact procedure with the cocoa butter, then added one metrically calculated drug. He showed me how to turn the suppositories out at the right moment, then told me how to put them into a box and label them professionally as so-and-so, one in a hundred. He went away then to attend to other duties, but I was worried because I was convinced that what had gone into those suppositories was 10% and made a dose of one in 10. In each, not one in a hundred. I went over his calculations and they were wrong. In using the metric system, he had got his dot in the wrong place. But what was the young student to do? I was the merest novice. He was the best known pharmacist in the town. I couldn't say to him, Mr. P, you have made a mistake. Mr. P, the pharmacist, was the sort of person who does not make a mistake, especially in front of a student. At this moment, repassing me, he said, You can put those into stock. We do need them sometimes. Worse and worse. I couldn't let those suppositories go into stock. It was quite a dangerous drug that was being used. You can stand far more of a dangerous drug if it's being given through the rectum, but all the same. I didn't like it, and what was I to do about it? Even if I suggested the dose was wrong, would he believe me? I was quite sure of the answer to that. He would say, it's quite all right. Do you think I don't know what I'm doing in matters of this kind? There was only one thing for it. Before the suppositories cooled, I tripped, lost my footing, upset the board on which they were reposing, and trod on them firmly. Mr. P, I said, I'm terribly sorry. I've knocked over those suppositories and stepped on them. Dear, 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 he said vexedly. This one seems all right. He picked up one which had escaped the weight of my beetle crushers. It's dirty, I said firmly, and without more ado, tipped them all into the waste bin. I'm very sorry, I repeated. That's all right, little girl, he said. Don't worry too much, and patted me tenderly on the shoulders. He was too much given to that kind of thing. Pats on the shoulders, nudges, occasionally a faint attempt to stroke my cheek. I had to put up with it because I was being instructed. But I was as standoffish as possible and usually managed to engage the the other dispenser in conversation so that I could not be alone with him. He was a strange man, Mr. P. One day, seeking perhaps to impress me, he took from his pocket a dark-colored lump and showed it to me, saying "'Know what this is?' "'No,' I said. "'It's curare. he said. "'Know about curare? "'I said I had read about it. "'Interesting stuff,' he said. "'Very interesting. "'Taken by the mouth, it does you no harm at all. "'Enter the bloodstream, it paralyzes and kills you. "'It's what they use for arrow poison. "'Do you know why I carry it in my pocket?' "'No,' I said, "'I haven't the slightest idea. "'It seemed to me an extremely foolish thing to do, "'but I didn't add that. "'Well, you know,' he said thoughtfully, "'it makes me feel powerful.' I looked at him then. He was a rather funny-looking little man, very roundabout and robin red-breast-looking with a nice pink face. There was a general air of childish satisfaction about him. Shortly afterwards, I finished my instructional course, but I often wondered about Mr. P. Afterwards. He struck me, in spite of his cherubic appearance, as possibly rather a dangerous man. His memory remained with me so long that it was still there waiting when I first conceived the idea of riding my book, The Pale Horse. And that must have been, I suppose, nearly 50 years later. And that is where we get Mr. Osborne from.
0: That's quite the
1: story, actually. Right? I mean, I apologize for the length of that, but I found it fascinating. And that's, again, you know, I'm just going to sing the praises of Christy's autobiography, but that engaging voice of hers, it's just like she is sitting next to you telling you a story. And he's horrifying. I mean... In a, in a couple of different ways. I,
0: like, I wonder <laughs> if that guy, like, actually... Do you think that guy actually killed somebody?
1: Probably. It sounds like it. Yeah, I mean, he was obviously a menace, and she never forgot him. Yikes. We should just also wrap up one remaining or two remaining loose ends. Uh, first of all, Ginger, of course, is going to recover, even though it's going to take a while. Now that the doctors know she's suffering from thallium poisoning, and she and Mark are obviously going to live happily ever after. And Mrs. Dane Calthrop seems to approve, and hooray, the end. Mm.
0: This episode is brought to you by Yarn. Catherine, have you ever
1: wanted to snoop through someone's phone without getting caught?
0: Do you need to ask me that or wonder if I've actually done it before?
1: (laughs) Are you curious how others live or love?
0: Seriously, Kemper, have we not met?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, then Yarn is perfect for you, Catherine, and I'm quite sure for many of our listeners because it allows you to explore and engage in stories like never before. It's
0: true. You get to tap through immersive, scary, steamy, thrilling stories via text, video calls, voice notes, and much more on the Yarn app. That's Y-A-R-N, by the way.
1: Oh, I'm aware. The storytelling features really do lend themselves well to crime stories, which is why we highly suggest you tap through the most addictive and immersive stories today, only on Yarn. Trust me, with over 27 million downloads, Yarn is a must-play. Download Yarn for free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's Y-A-R-N. Download it today to watch, read, and listen to all your favorite fiction stories. From steamy to horror, Yarn has it all. Let's just briefly, and I do actually mean that this time, briefly talk about the adaptations because I'm just going to say right off the bat there are three adaptations of The Pale Horse, and I don't think any of them are much good. So I don't think that we need to spend a lot of time on them. I think the book is so much better than any of these. But the first one that we have in the English language is this ITV version that aired in 1996. Mm -hmm. Gene Marsh actually plays There Is a Gray in it, which I loved. The scene in which Mark actually goes to the seance and the witches are cursing ginger or Kate as she's named in this version and Bella slits the rooster's throat and the clucks turn into Gene Marsh laughing and then Bella screams the blood just like in the text. I found that very effective (laughs)
0: spirit go
1: out to the wearer of the glove as with all human beings her goal in life is to achieve death there is no final satisfaction but death That might have been the most effective scene in any of the adaptations that we watched. But again, that's not really saying all that much. Mark Easterbrook is played by Colin Buchanan. He's very working class in this version. He's very angry young man. That's definitely the vibe they were going for there. They even reference the angry young man trope jokingly at the beginning. It's... It's fine. It's generally faithful to the book.
0: Yeah, I don't think... Anybody's going to go out on a limb and recommend watching it?
1: No, it's very hard to find as well. And, and I have to say, I don't think it's particularly worth the effort. Let's, let's transition into uh, the second ITV version that we have. This actually aired in 2010 as part of the Agatha Christie's Marple series starring Julia McKenzie. We're in the first episode of season slash series five of the six seasons mm-hmm. slash series that exist. It's curious, they don't use either of the connections to Miss Marple. Marple that Christie was potentially going to use uh, instead. Miss Marple is a friend of Father Gorman's, and he writes to her just before he's killed, and she gets in very much involved, and she stays at the Pale Horse Inn. Actually, it's it, it is an inn, a functioning inn in this version. And the we, the three weird sisters are much less weird in this version. Yeah. And Mark Easterbrook is much older, and he's much more buttoned up than he is. I think even in the book, he's not so much stodgy as businessy in this version and very much sidelined by Miss Marple too. I mean, that's a little bit of the issue that, you know, they really do make this much more about Miss Marple. I don't know. I actually felt that it was very much going through the motions as to the black magic and dark supernatural elements of the story. It had an aggressive soundtrack. It didn't seem scary to me, even though it was trying to scare me constantly. I mainly found myself unmoved by it.
0: And then we have the most recent adaptation, don't we?
1: Well, first, we should never fail to mention the French language version, part of... Oh, yes, Catherine. Les petites Meurts. Les Petits Meurts. (laughs) Dagatha Christie. We do have one of those which aired in 2016. That was in the second iteration. And I believe we're going to be getting a third iteration of that series soon. So fresh characters. I can't wait. But yes, so let's talk about the final version, which many of you will likely have caught some, if not all of. That would be the BBC adaptation, which aired in March of 2020, very recently. And this was written by Sarah Phelps. We have talked about many a Sarah Phelps BBC adaptation of Agatha Christie of Late, and it stars Rufus Middle March slash Cold Comfort Farm Sewell. That's at least how Catherine and I would prefer I know, to think of him.
0: I know. Oh, <laughs> Cold Comfort Farm.
1: Oh, and Middle March too. Oh, Will Ladislaw. Rufus Sewell as Will Ladislaw. Perfection. So yeah, he plays Mark Easterbrook, and this adaptation does you know,
0: not adhere very to much the unlike book.
1: the Marple adaptation. It, well, it really forefronts Mark Easterbrook, and it's funny. It takes the one element of the book that I didn't like so much, which is that weird backstory of Mark's first mm-hmm. wife F4 and or makes Fonsecai. the story... All about Mm -hmm. that. Yeah, just goes really hardcore. And we get this fabricated backstory in which Mark's first wife died in the tub. And for a while, it seems like she must have killed herself and he's blaming himself about it. But what we ultimately learn is that Mark actually killed her himself because in a jealous rage thinking she was having an affair with someone, she wasn't. He batted a radio into her bath and she was electrocuted and she died and he's immediately remorseful. But He's obviously got some anger issues and a lot of deep-seated problems, and uh, he is also in this version actually married to Hermia, and they are as ill-matched as they are in the book, so that's very problematic. There are lots of unpleasant things we're forced to see, like a dead rat in a sink. There's a bloody rabbit. There's one fantasy sequence where one woman brains another with what I believe is a ham hawk. Although that one was actually a little funny since it was about not using an ashtray. It was very serial mom. But we have Mark saying, punish me to a statue of Jesus. Uh, You know, we're a little bit in, dare I say, Sarah Phelps land.
0: Yeah, it doesn't track with the book. And the book, by the way, is weird enough of all of the books that like you want to do something weird with. This book was already plenty weird. Right. There was no right. there was no right. need to make this book weirder. It was already plenty weird.
1: Right. Like if you suffer from the misconception that Christie is not outlandish and weird enough, R- yeah, read again, this book I would say because, read, read the pale horse, right. but apparently it still wasn't enough. You no.
0: Know, and I mean, the stuff about like making Mark a wife murderer, Flanderer, whatever he is supposed to be in the adaptation is bizarre.
1: It's bizarre. I don't really understand what it gets you. I never really engaged with this adaptation, to be perfectly honest. Uh, you know, we do at least still have Mr. Osborne being the killer and with Thallium, the means of the murder and the murderer is not changed. But after that, Mark seemingly kills Osborne, actually. Why not? He's apparently on a spree. <laughs> and <laughs> I mean, I'm going to
0: be I'm be completely uh, honest of all of these BBC adaptations, I think think this
1: one works the least well. I do too. I think there was a lot more hullabaloo and consternation over Ordeal Mm -hmm. by Innocence and I understand why because she changed the murderer and the means of the murder, and I think that was unforgivable for a lot of people and I understand that but I think that that adaptation as a long film or a miniseries, whatever you want to call it hung together better I say that with all relativity but hung together better than this did. (laughs)
0: This episode is brought to you by Best Fiends.
1: So, Catherine, at this point, we've been enjoying Best Fiends for a while. And, you know, there's been a lot of talk as to your ongoing love affair with Howie the Lizard. And I think we've been a bit remiss, though, in not giving our listeners some playing tips. Because at this point, we know there are a lot of you out there enjoying this hit game along with us.
0: You know, Kemper, I can kill two proverbial birds with one stone here because I'm happy to share how Howie and I make a great team as we're battling those slugs. We sometimes have to make Howie leave. Sometimes you have to actually pick your fighter. And I know that that is like a difficult choice, but like, you know, he can go out of the room for a minute on the level and then he can come back on the next one because perhaps somebody had better tools than maybe he does on that level
1: so sometimes you switch Howie out for another fiend It's very painful for me, Kemper. Wow. That is not only some just astonishing information, but also useful information, I think, to have as we all move forward together in our collective experience of Best Fiends. It's a true win-win. Thank you, Catherine.
0: I mean, thank Howie as well.
1: Oh, I will. So engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download best fiends free on the apple app store or google play that's friends without the r best fiends let's transition into the rankings. We always want to check in on what our good friend John Curran thinks about a title. This is what he had to say about The Pale Horse, and I agree, as I usually do. One of the strongest titles of the last 15 years of her career, The Pale Horse has a horribly plausible plot, a very unusual poison, and a genuine feeling of menace over and above the usual whodunit element. At first, it seems as if Agatha Christie has changed literary tracks and is writing black magic, but as with many of her titles, what You think you see is not what you get. And I do think that this is probably the best example of Christie using that supernatural solution as a red herring, because it really does feel like, is something supernatural happening here? I mean, it is it is valid, it is pervasive, it is oppressive, even. The supernatural element is oppressive right. in the novel, and yet we still get our Agatha Christie classic Golden Age-esque puzzle mystery solution Solution at the end, she gives us both, and that is brilliant.
0: Right. Also, we can appreciate the, you know, Macbeth references, right? We can appreciate the theatricality of the whole thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, I also think it's pretty remarkable that, you know, we we talk a lot about how Christy often will recycle plots and dress them up via character or setting to such a degree that she truly does make them fresh again, which is authorial power of one sort. But in this case, this book, I have to say, does not remind me of any of her previous titles. And now that we are in the 60s, she's now writing in her fifth decade. I think that's worth mentioning. And I may be proven wrong when we get to a later title, but I also think that this is our last, with the possible exception of Curtain. this is our last of the kind of gonzo high concepts that she pulls off. And usually those can be boiled down to blank did it, right? I'm not going to identify which titles these are, but you know, they all did it. The policeman did it. The seemingly intended victim did it, et cetera, et cetera. And in this case, the corporation right. did it. There's an actual corporation mm-hmm. that is formed and that pulls off these murders and in a very pleasing way, single person who's responsible for it and behind it all, and she pulls it off. It's utterly believable. And also, you know, even though the book is dark and weird and those supernatural elements can be oppressive, it moves. And while that might go more towards setting in tone, I do think that just from a pure plot mechanic standpoint, in terms of pulling off the puzzle mystery and giving us these not spy thriller elements, but really supernatural thriller elements, her, her plot construction is flawless.
0: Yeah, I think the plot mechanics actually, like, as crazy as it sounds, given the pseudo-supernatural plot, I think the plot mechanics actually work really pretty well here. I mean, the only argument against them might be that Mark himself is involved. He's not a natural choice for being essentially the protagonist in so far as actually deducing what happened.
1: Right. I tend to think that goes a little bit more toward character, and I agree with you, actually, that it's where I think we start making some deductions Yeah, in in the rankings, because I think he feels a little yeah, out of place, I, actually, right. in the book. I agree with that, but I think, you know, it's it's got to be someone, but I, but I think just from pure plot construction, I don't know if that's, this is necessarily the place to dock points, but just talking about plot credibility as well, as we usually do before I we mean, assign any scores. I mean, less, escorts, less um, credible. I actually totally disagree. I, here's the thing, and this is also what's so brilliant about this book. This is a murder plot that could only have been carried out in the contemporary milieu of 1961 as opposed to earlier, because what it really hinges on is this recent development in Christie's world, in Christie's England, of people going door to door asking questions for various surveys. And, you know, the way that she puts it um, in the novel is, is pretty effective. She says, people nowadays are conditioned to answering quizzes. They seldom object. And in her notebook, she also characterizes the people like Mrs. Davis who are employed by this research association as Women who go around and quote, report on the NH service, the NH service, of course, being national health. And I think this is a reflection of the world in which she was living in the early 60s. And I almost have to wonder if Christy herself <laughs> didn't have someone come to her door and like try to quiz her well, on some, you know, try to do an annoying quiz. And she was like,
0: hmm. Well, I mean, this have is you... interesting. I mean, that's brilliant. Well, I mean, have you ever put together a survey? No, I have. And I will say this much. If you're doing them right, you're designing them to manipulate people to actually respond to you truthfully. Because people lie on surveys. You have to do it in an appropriate way to get them to tell the truth. It is something that is still done today. I mean, my response always is don't take a survey. That would be my advice, frankly. <laughs> or if you do, make sure that you know what you're answering or make sure that you know what well, the survey is being done for because do not give people your information. So the, that is totally credible. It's a little bit the um, psychotic murder for hire business that's not that credible.
1: Here's the thing. The proximate motive, which is just pure old greed, right? I mean, it's lucre. That's yeah. that's credible. There is an extra layer of psychopathy, sure. obviously in that only one with delusions of grandeur would go through with running a corporation that murders people for hire. But that's kind of who Mr. Osborne is well, no, it's, it's, as it's, borne out by... It's more
0: that, is somebody's stepmother really searching out this weird coven of fake witches and a murder-for-hire business?
1: You know who would say absolutely because people are garbage? Ms.
0: Yeah, Miss Marple would yeah. agree. That's totally true. Miss Marple actually might be the source behind this <laughs> it's real dark marble
1: the true peak, dark marble peak. text this is the apocryphal dark marble text in which she doesn't even peak, appear but her hand dark marble. is behind it all <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i mean i think it's horrifying but i actually find it very very credible and this is where i also just have to note christie's handling of thallium because it's almost not even notable that that she handles a poison well, because she usually does. It would it would be more notable if she didn't handle it well. But she does it particularly well in this novel. And the one thing I just wanted to get into for a second for all you nerds out there, which I did get from Catherine Harkup's says for Arsenic, The Poisons of Agatha Christie, is how thallium actually works. And the, the, don't worry, this is quick, but it's absorbed in the body the same way that potassium is. And potassium is everywhere in the body, performing all sorts of different functions. So when you give someone thallium, however you do, either ingesting it or through their skin or whatever, through their gums, the thallium replaces the potassium. And then the symptoms that appear in that person's body are due to malfunctions in potassium-based processes. And since potassium does so much, that's why the symptoms really can be totally different from person to person. She's not just making that up for convenience. I mean, that really is how thallium acts in the body and this is also where i think we'd be remiss if we didn't note a sort of quirky history to the pale horse and it's something that i think a lot of Christie fans probably think of when the pale horse is mentioned which is oh isn't that the one where like someone maybe used the book to actually murder someone in real life There was a case, a really famous case of thallium poisoning that went to trial a few months after The Pale Horse was published, and it was this young man named Graham Young, and he's a doozy, believe me, even among serial poisoners. Catherine Harkup talks a lot about him in her book, but he had been poisoning people for many, many years, and he was an expert on thallium long before The Pale Horse was published, which he also claimed not to have read, by the way. He said he didn't read The Pale Horse. And we should also note that Christie wasn't the first major mystery writer to feature thallium anyway, but Niall Marsh used thallium in Final Curtain, which was published all the way back in 1947. So that's often what I think people are thinking of when they think of like this real life analog to the pale horse. And Christie herself heard about the case and was question, you know, asked about it constantly since it happened right around the time that the book came out. But interestingly, after Christie's death in 1988, there was this man in Florida of course. <laughs> who poisoned his next door neighbors because they were making too much noise. And he wanted them gone. And he's called the quote unquote Mensa murderer because he was a member <laughs> of Mensa, who's a very smart fellow. And oh, one are, of these neighbors. Are, are we sure whole... about
0: Mensa? I'm just gonna like
1: true, true. I feel like Mensa is like the dumb club for smart people. <laughs> it's like we're smart, dumb people gather. Do you know what I mean? I
0: mean, it's um <laughs> also there's like really some questioning about the validity of IQ tests.
1: Indeed. So he poisoned a whole bunch of these neighbors, um, and one of them ingested a lot more thallium than the others, and she died after four very painful months, actually, in the hospital. It was was awful. And this man was a murder mystery fan with an extensive knowledge of chemicals, and he did indeed have a copy of The Pale Horse in his house, and he was eventually eventually convicted of that murder. He's currently on death row in Florida. But happily, we actually have two positive anecdotes here where people actually used The Pale Horse to say lives rather than to end them. And this is all coming again from Catherine Harker. But in 1975, there was a woman living in South America who realized that she was witnessing the slow poisoning of a man by his young wife. She recognized the symptoms of thallium poisoning because she read the pale horse. And if not for uh, this woman's intervention, that man would have died. So Christy saved a life there. And then a year after Christy died in 1977, this one is actually even more horrific. There was a 19-month-old child taken ill in Cotter, And her symptoms just stumped all the doctors that examined her. They didn't know what was going on. And there was this nurse, Marcia Maitland, who had been reading The Pale Horse. (laughs) And um, she was like, hmm, maybe it's thallium. She just suggested that. And urine samples from the 19-month-old were sent to Scotland Yard. The presence of thallium was confirmed. And what had actually been happening, that the parents were not poisoning their child or anything, the source of the poison was an insecticide that the parents had been using to kill cockroaches and rats in the drains and cesspit on their property in Cuyahoga. And unknown to the parents, the child had found and eaten some of the insecticide. So they were able to save this toddler's life. And the uh, physicians who treated her actually wrote at the end of the report an acknowledgement of their indebtedness, quote, to the late Agatha Christie for her excellent and perceptive clinical descriptions and to Nurse Maitland for keeping (laughs) us up to date on the literature. I love it too. So look at that Christie saving young and old Uh, here in addition to entertaining the hell out of us. I,
0: I love it too. So, I mean, yeah. from that perspective, the credibility is very clear.
1: I mean, for God's sake, Catherine, she saved a 19 month old. I think that's worth an eight.
0: Fine. You know what? I Just on that basis alone, I'm behind that.
1: All right. We talked about this a little bit before, actually, but I think we were going to give eights in both the plot mechanics and plot credibility. So a 16 overall, which is extremely high, the highest we've gone in a long time, but I, I really think it's warranted.
0: Yeah. So series-long characters, uh, we get Ariadne Oliver, who is delightful when she's showing up. I don't know that her role in this is more than just an appearance, basically. Like, oh, it's like Love Boat, and here is like like your favorite celebrity on some 1970s show.
1: She does sort of make cameo appearances. I mean, the only thing that I have to highlight of Ariadne Oliver from the text is that there are a few passages where she's opining about writing, which gives us an opportunity to get inside Christy's head oh, and on there, the subject. Oh, and it's delightful. And it's delightful and actually also particularly relevant for what Christy's doing in this story. So the first one's a little more general, but she says, say what you like, it's not natural for five or six people to be on the spot when B is murdered and all have a motive for killing B, unless that is B is absolutely madly unpleasant And in that case, nobody will mind whether he's been killed or not and doesn't care in the least who's done it.
0: I know. That's my favorite. It's actually one of my favorite lines in the whole book. I laughed actually out loud.
1: I laughed aloud at that, too. And then I really appreciated this, too. And I think this is going to be really helpful to keep in mind as we get into Christie's somewhat crotchety portrayals of the youngins in the 60s. This is what Mrs. Oliver says when she finds out that Mark was in Chelsea. Oh, Chelsea. Everything happens there, I believe. Beatniks and Sputniks and squares and the beat generation. I don't write about them much because I'm so afraid of getting the terms wrong. It's safer, I think, to stick to what you know. Oh. <laughs> That speaks to her self-awareness there. I'm just
0: going to say, I'm pretty sure that people in 2021 are still
1: saying that about various things. Yes. I appreciate Christy's self-awareness. I kind of wish that she had followed her own advice Mm. on that score in years to come, but uh, we'll get there. But then I actually really, really appreciated what she said about having a master criminal, a sort of thrillerish master criminal in her stories, because we've seen Christy do that so many times before. We've often, again, gently, you know, ribbed her for the cheesiness of those characters sometimes, and she seems to be very much aware of that, and this is what Ariadne Oliver says about that. Of course, I often have a master criminal in my stories. People like it, but really he gets harder and harder to do. So long as one doesn't know who he is, I can keep him impressive, but when it all comes out, he seems somehow so inadequate, a kind of anti-climax. It's much easier if you just have a bank manager who's embezzled the funds, or a husband who wants to get rid of his wife and marry the children's governess. So much more natural, if if you know what I mean. What's so ironic about that is that in this very That's book, what she's doing. she actually yeah. is what she's doing, but she actually, when she does reveal Mr. Osborne, it is one of the more effective times as opposed to in those adventure thrillers when the Marquis or Mr. X or Mr. Brown, et cetera, et cetera, is revealed. And you're often like, uh, I guess you know?
0: Yeah. I mean, like, oh, <laughs> like Mr. Brown wrote this entire memoir about his evil plotting and
1: wah The only other thing I want to mention about Mrs. Oliver is that there is a legitimately funny runner. When Mark first sees Mrs. Oliver, she's agonizing over a plot turn in her latest mystery, which involves a cockatoo. And Mark witnesses this. And then later on, he asks her how the cockatoo's going. And she indignantly replies, really? I think you must be mad or have a hangover or something. And then at the end, of the book, her latest book comes out and it's called The White Cockatoo. And it's just sort of it's like flecks and flashes of humor like this that I think show yeah, Christy really knew what she yeah, was doing, a, especially in a book this dark. you know you need you, you do, need those moments and you know, they are there and I, in the book.
0: I think um, Mrs. Dane Calthrop is good in this
1: she is I mean Rhoda and Colonel Despard are non-entities, so I, I think we don't have to talk no, any more but about i mean them, but, I, I um, do
0: think that these people are kind of just like thrown in there, and it's a little jarring.
1: It is a little jarring. I mean, I really do think, actually, and I'm really making this up on the spot off of your point, Catherine, about how Maude Dane Calthrop seems to be Miss Marple substitution, but I really do think she just kind of thought of those two characters that had been in a Miss Marple novel and put them in there as a substitution for what Miss Marple was going to be. It's actually really funny. She wrote to her longtime agent, Edmund Cork, to ask him whether or not there had been a hyphen between the Dane and the Calthrop, which I think is really funny because we were music about how weird those double-barreled names are in a previous episode, even though since then we've been told by many loyal listeners that it's just very common in Britain to have those quote-unquote double-barreled names where they don't have a hyphen like Andrew Lloyd Webber, Kristen Scott Thomas, Helena Bonham Carter, oh. Sasha Baron
0: Cohen.
1: One of my best
0: friends has a double-barreled name like that, and everybody tried to hyphenate it when he was younger, just like how often... I'm always Catherine and people would try to call me like Kathy when I was young Mm -hmm. and it would just be like, no, I'm Catherine. He was insistent. He and his sister were insistent always. There is not a hyphen.
1: You know, what's really funny too, apparently Helena Bonham Carter has said that you can put a hyphen between the Bonham and the Carter if you want to. And there are members of the Baron Cohen family who hyphenate as well. So it's apparently very controversial.
0: Uh, no, I know. I think it is a controversial thing. I think that it's a little bit like a personal preference or an aesthetic preference in a lot of ways.
1: It's just funny that she wrote to her agent to ask what the last name was of two characters in her book that I'm like, couldn't you have just like pulled your own book off of the shelf? It just, it shows how involved Edmund Cork was in Christie's writerly pursuits. They had a very, very close relationship. (laughs) So I like it. Yeah. Those characters are good not outstanding, even with everything that you know makes Ariadne and Oliver wonderful. And the only other thing I want to mention on the series long front, this is really weird and it's not something we've ever mentioned before, but it also is something that some people think about when the pale horse comes up. We have actually a series long passage of text that appears in two future books. And it's this Oddity in the Christie Oeuvre, which I just want to point out because I, I would feel remiss if I didn't. But when Mark and Hermia are at dinner with David Ardingly and his ditzy girlfriend Poppy, you know they're talking about creepy things, and David brings up this memory of how he once went to a mental home and he was shown into a room to wait, and there was a nice elderly lady there, and I'm now quoting from the text, sipping a glass of milk. She made some conventional remark about the weather, and then suddenly she lent. Forward and asked in a low voice, is it your poor child who's buried there behind the fireplace? And then she nodded her head and said, 1210 exactly, it's always at the same time every day, pretend you don't notice the blood. And then David says, it was the matter of fact way she said it. That was so spine chilling. It's super weird. It's like a super weird memory. It adds to, you know, the overall kind of chilling atmosphere of the book. This appears almost word for word, not quite identical, but almost word for word, very centrally in By the Pricking of My Thumbs. We'll talk more about it when we get to that book. It also appears in Sleeping Murder. And no one really knows why she just clearly thought it was super creepy and was fascinated, I guess, by the notion of this old woman Did talking about a child that being kid? buried in the I fireplace. Actually,
0: I like, by the pricking of my thumbs, I remember that being in, I don't think I remember. I mean, we haven't gotten there yet in rereading. I don't remember that in Sleeping Murders, But is there like some history to that that we just don't know of?
1: Like, did this happen to
0: Academic? Well, I mean, like, did she hear I, that? Like, I mean, did she hear that from someone?
1: Possibly. It's just an oddity. If anyone, by the way, I mean, here's the power of this podcast, we're pooling our Christie obsession. If anyone has any light to shed on that, please contact us via social media, email, whatever. I really am curious if there's any light to shed on this because the oddity was noted in a lot of different places in a lot of the secondary sources that we use when we're doing our research for these episodes, but no one could explain it. I think that even though there's so much to say, you know, in Ariadne Oliver's favor as there always is. It's not a hugely, hugely, hugely standout Ariadne Oliver novel, because even though she's appearing here on her own without Poirot, it does have a little bit of a cameo Mm -hmm. sort of feel to it. I agree with that. I came out very mid-level on this. I think that it's fine, but not outstanding.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I would also say book specific characters. I mean, we're gonna get there in a second. I don't know if we need to link them or not. In a weird not a huge fan of the book specific characters.
1: It's funny, I'm a huge fan of this book, but for every reason other than character. Yeah. And there's are some times where I'm a huge fan of a Christie book only because of character or oh, mainly because of sure. character. So I agree. I mean, weirdly, even though, yes, all of those characters are technically series long because we don't have a Poirot or a Marple in here, it also does sort of feel like a book where the series long category and the book specific category should be ranked sort of the same. The overall feel of good, that Not great characters, edging perhaps even to a little meh, given how outstandingly brilliant the plot is and what a joy it is to read this book. The fact that it's not singing on a character level, I think, puts me in the same mid level place for book specific characters. And here's where I'll say what I was going to say about Mark Easterbrook. We've seen Christy write so many engaging male first person narrators, and they really run the gamut from Leonard Clement in the Murder at the Vicarage podcast. Podcast favorite to one that we haven't even covered yet, who's so different. And that would be Michael Rogers in Endless Night, who is extremely mm-hmm. effective in that novel. And Mark just, I think, <laughs> misses the mark, dare I say. He just doesn't quite fit or doesn't quite sing here for me as a narrator or character. He's
0: boring. And all the women are really bad. That sounds harsh. But, you know, the poppies and the gingers and the hermias, they're not her best work.
1: No, Poppy is a joke, basically a one note joke in the book. Ginger is a disaster of a character because we're actually supposed mm-hmm. to care a little bit about her burgeoning relationship yeah, it's with Mark, n- and it just never even seems yeah. real. And it's non existent. a like, um, dull rag. Hermia is also, I mean, there's a lot of contempt, I think, for, for the is, Hermia really character, unfair. which is a no, little it's funny. Also, by
0: the way, unjustified. It doesn't actually seem like there should be that much contempt
1: for her. It's odd. I agree. He literally talks about ha- and complains about how boring Hermia is multiple times in the book. And I wanted to be like, you're not so great yourself, dude. Like, why are you so interesting? Like,
0: like what on earth is your deal, dude? (laughs) Shut up about her. Stop being mean about her. She clearly is probably more interesting than you. And we're getting it from this first person perspective. And it's like, I have to imagine that actually the person who's the jerk in this story is the person who's telling it. And also, here's the thing, the quote-unquote witches, they're not interesting either.
1: I will give Christy some credit on Thurza Gray. She's a little bit frightening. I want to actually read out one description of Thurza during the seance that Mark attends because I thought that this was effective. He says, Thurza's manner had changed. The odd thing was that I could not define exactly in what the change consisted. There was none of Sybil's spurious occultism about it. It was more as though an everyday curtain of normal trivial life had been lifted. Behind it was the real woman, displaying something of the manner of a surgeon approaching the operating table for a difficult and dangerous operation. That's an effective passage. It probably more goes to writing style and overall tone than character, honestly, but I did like that. Yeah.
0: First of all, (laughs) I kind of think you can make the argument that Mark seems like such a dull dimwit that he probably actually wouldn't have thought that. I think all of the characters in this are bad.
1: I don't think they're bad. I think they're middling. And Mr. Osborne, you know, it's It's funny. Not
0: interesting. I mean, he's like interesting in that he runs a murder
1: corporation. And the unmasking is again well written, which I think goes more to setting and tone. And when I read the inspiration for him out of her autobiography, that is absolutely chilling, chilling. fascinating.
0: But he's not.
1: He's not. And I don't get a lot of that on the page from him. And for anyone who hasn't read after the funeral festival. Forward 15, 30 seconds. But when I compare him to Miss Gilchrist, Mm -hmm. I mean, Miss Gilchrist, now there is a just absolutely hideously chilling murderer. And we're supposed to feel the same way about Mr. Osborne at the end. You can feel that and it just doesn't quite fly. I think we were coming out on fives. Okay. And then we get to setting and tone and I already harped a little bit on the awkwardness of the bifurcated narration, but that's a quibble. There are a lot of big themes in this book. Evil is a big theme and we really get the sense that Christy does not admire evil whatsoever. Dr. Corrigan goes on this extended monologue about how secretions of Mandarin, glands are actually what's responsible for criminal behavior. And it all felt very Dr. Haydock in The Murder at the Vicarage. She's done this before. It's kind of a straw man argument where she's creating a character who says something ridiculous about criminality being physical so that Christine can be like, yeah, but no, really, it's about being evil because some people are weak and those people are just bad and we need to stamp them out and excise mm-hmm. them from our right. community. It's a lot of Christie doing christie ish things and doing them well. And I think a lot of that goes to tone. What I would just say about setting is that I think this is an extremely above average example of uh, one of her London set novels. And the cliche is that she always set her mysteries in country estates or out-of-the-way villages, but at this point, by my reckoning, she's done this four times before, setting a book in London. Uh, we had Lord Edgware Dies, One, Two, Buckle My Shoes, Sparkling Cyanide, and Hickory Dickory Dock. And I guess you could say The Secret Adversary, although technically that's more of a thriller. And I think this is one of the best evocations of London as an urban setting from the get-go with Chelsea and, you know, Mark and Ginger are running around. And, you know, I know when he goes to see Mr. Bradley, technically he's in Birmingham, but it's also an urban setting. And then the contrast of that with the ridiculously but fabulously named Much Deeping, which is also quite well evoked. I mean, that contrast is part of the point, right? Where it's this book where we actually are led to believe that these supernatural sort of things are actually happening and that superstition has an underpinning of reality to it. And we're, we're led to believe that within an extremely real contemporary modern setting. And that's powerful. The only
0: note that I would have about this is that speaking of a book that I like better than you do, but one of the things that I was reminded of, especially because it's like a sort of like Folk horror thing is Murder is Easy. Mm-hmm. And Much Deeping does have a very similar feel to what's going on in Murder
1: is Easy. Is it Witchwood under yes. Ash? Yeah. It
0: has yeah. a very, very similar thing kind of going on there. So part of me a little bit, thinks
1: that she ripped herself off. I think she does it so much better here. I agree with you. It it has echoes of that. But before we even get to much deeping, when we have that extended conversation over dinner among Hermia and Mark and David and Poppy, they talk about whether or not there are really witches still in England. And this is what they say. There's still a witch in every village in rural England. Old Mrs. Black in the third cottage up the hill. Little boys are told not to annoy her, and she's given presents of eggs and a home-baked cake now and again because if you get across her, your cows will stop giving milk, your potato crop will fail, or little Johnny will twist his ankle. You must keep on the right side of old Mrs. Black. Nobody says so outright, but they all know to get that before we even get to much deeping and then to actually go to the Pale Horse, which is described as, by the way, a half-timbered building, but Christy points out that it's genuine right, half-timbering, fake, not fake. Yeah. I mean, it's what we would call, quote-unquote, mm-hmm. Tudor, that exposed panels with the right. plaster between. And, you know, this they have the sign of the Pale Horse, which is filthy and old. I but, mean, it's... She's really, really going to great pains yeah. to evoke that creepy village yeah.
0: setting. Yeah, I mean, but again, in Murder is Easy, we get the whole... Thing- with the witches spot on the top of the hill that, you know, supposedly witches had once gathered at. And it's exactly the same thing going on here.
1: Yeah, but I think she's doing about 10 times more of it here and doing it well. And it's central to the puzzle in a way that it really wasn't. It was just window dressing in Murder is Easy. I mean, I think her evocation of setting is part of why she pulls off the puzzle mystery as well as she does. I think that it's an extremely fast read. Propulsive, actually, because you're legitimately, as you often are in Christie, not sure what the heck is going on and how she could possibly satisfactorily solve everything that's happening here and tie up every loose end. And then she really does, with all of her usual efficiency, underneath the umbrella of all of this weirdness.
0: I, I, I think that's fair. I also think that if you actually start to piece it apart you get all of this layering of detail which actually might like make it great it might make it more difficult and more interesting it might be that that's what makes it work it's just an oddity here's the other thing that i guess i would say is that we talk a lot about particularly like her efficiency and i don't find it to be a very efficient
1: book I think actually that the puzzle mystery is efficient. I think that the puzzle mystery crafting and resolution is as efficient as it always is. The trappings so overwhelm this book in a good way, in a really good way, that I think it's easy to lose sight of that efficiency underneath all of it, but the bones, so to speak, of this book, those puzzle mystery bones, they really are there. Not as super tight in terms of puzzle mystery construction as in the earlier books. We talked about how as she got later in her career, things just got a little bit looser, but pretty tight actually, especially comparing it to some of the recent later Christies that we've covered, which is why when it wraps up, it really does. It's like she's pulling back the curtain and saying, (laughs) ta-da! Like, and, And here's the solution. You're like, like oh my god, you're right. How did I not see this? So that you well, get that kind of Christy-ish I mean, revelation. I the,
0: my, my other I think it's all question there. for you. I mean, like, I guess you can see where it's going. I, I don't know that there is a lot in there that says this book is about a murder for hire company.
1: Well, right, because she's she's hiding the ball, and yet there are clues that she's built that she's building into the story, so that when you look at it, you know, after the yeah, fact, you're like, so, oh, I mean, yeah, I guess the question is, it was all there it's only cheating if she didn't put it in there at all. And she does. Mm,
0: fair enough.
1: I mean, the funny thing is that I think we both yeah, came out we, really high. For sure. No, <laughs> absolutely.
0: We did. So I, I guess I'm just arguing a point, but yeah, we, I think agree on where this lands.
1: Yeah, I think we're actually going to mm-hmm. give it a nine. That was right? I
0: think I raised you up a point when we were talking about it.
1: Well, it's funny. I was willing to go an eight, but then I had originally, I think my impulse was to give a nine to plot mechanics or either plot credibility. But, you know, we were talking about just the mm-hmm. overall effect of this book and what yeah. it's doing. And it felt like given that we give so many eights in setting a tone, just a tick oh, above yeah. feels and I right. Mean, I, so yeah. so um, for
0: any listeners who think I'm being awfully harsh on this, please know that I was the one who um, made Kemper raise it a point.
1: (laughs) I think it's an overall just disquieting yeah,
0: book, actually. And, but I'm like, so I think I'm trying to work you know, through why it's disquieting. And it's because it's doing odd things all at the same time in different ways and things we've seen before. And they're not necessarily even keeled or like they're juxtaposed in weird ways. I even think I find the book jarring,
1: honestly. Right, and I actually think that speaks to its power. All right, so nine on setting a tone. And then happily, this is going to be a very short category for stuck in its time because we have no deductions. I was amused by this exchange between DDI Lejeune and Mark where Christy writes, Lejeune said unexpectedly, she's a redhead, didn't you say? Yes, I said, startled. You can never argue with a redhead, said Lejeune. Don't I know it? And then Mark says, I wondered if his wife was one. (laughs) That was the only time where like my eyebrow rose a little bit. Although actually there was also the, the, the fact that Mr. Venables is described as having quote, a great hooked nose really is fine because there is zero implication that he's Jewish. I just, I think everyone will agree that whenever I read the phrase yeah, great hooked nose a in a Christie book, I get extremely nervous. Well, I but mean, I He think also apparently we, has a giant um, bobbing Adam's apple. So he apparently has a hyperthyroidism yeah, condition so. is what he has. Yeah. So yeah, no, I, but uh, zero deductions. All right. So we are now at that magical time of our episode where we are going to tally up our scores. So for the Pale Horse, we have eight plus eight plus five plus five plus nine minus zero for a grand total of 35 points. Putting the Pale Horse. This is very exciting, mm-hmm. Catherine. In a tie with Murder on the Orient Express, The Hollow, And Death on the Nile, they are sitting at 6th, 7th, and 8th place in our rankings. We have a new title in the top 10. I think that is absolutely warranted. I'm so excited that the Pale Horse is ranking as high as it is. I think that many will agree with that. I hope that you feel as good about that as I do. I,
0: again, am unsettled. But yeah, I think we're putting it at the bottom of that pile, though, right?
1: I think that you might put a curse on me if I don't put it anywhere else. So I think that I would also put it at the bottom there in ninth place between Death on the Nile and the Murder of the yeah. Vicarage. So we're in agreement about that. So, Catherine, our dear, dear peril at End House has been knocked out of the top ten. and oh,
0: that makes me twice. very sad.
1: I think that there aren't many titles left that are going to break into the top ten.
0: Maybe one or two, though. I think, um, so, yeah, I think there's a possibility of two.
1: Yeah, to be continued, but this top 10 is looking Mm -hmm. pretty solid at this point. And just to remind everyone, that's Five Little Pigs and Then There Were None, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, Crooked House, A Murder is Announced, Murder on the Orient Express, The Hollow, Death on the Nile, The Pale Horse, and The Murder at the Vicarage. Quite a top
0: 10. A Terrific top 10. I mean, there's a reason we do this podcast, Kemper, and I think that top 10 says it all.
1: Join us next time for a short story episode. Since we will actually be covering a Miss Marple novel next, we're going to be reading The Mirror Cracked Mm. from Side to Side, that it would make a lot of sense to read a Poirot short story. So we are going to be covering The Adventure of the Clapham Cook, which is not the first Poirot short story written. We already did that one. That would be The Affair of the Victory Ball. But... This is the first Suchet adaptation in the series. So we will be getting some young David Suchet and Hugh Frazier. Very excited for that. You can email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Patreon site over at www.patreon.com slash all about agatha for extra content. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at all about the dame. You can find Catherine on Twitter at Brobcat. Our Instagram handle is at all about Agatha and our facebook page is all about agatha and if you haven't yet done so please take a moment to rate and review us it helps other people find the podcast and we'd love to hear from you and we'll see you next time bye
0: bye